As a boy, I remember watching a movie, an animated movie, uh, that was made in 1963 called The Sword and the Stone. Anyone, anybody ever watched The Sword and the Stone? You're aging yourself. That's what you just did. Uh, and listen, if you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you. And all I got to say is I'm sorry you've had over 50 years to do this. And don't tell me you're going to do it today after you were going to go home from church. So the gist of the movie is simply this. The king of England has died and there is no apparent heir to the throne. And so they take his sword and they thrust it into an anvil. And it was said that whoever could pull the sword from the anvil would be the rightful king of England. And so many had tried and many had failed. And over years and years and years and years, uh, this prophecy had been all but forgotten. That was until sometime later in that city where the sword and the stone was, there was a competition of knights. And as these knights came together, they were competing in uh, one knight whose squire was a little boy, couldn't have been more than 12 years old, named Arthur. And Arthur's job was to provide for the knight everything that he needed to compete valiantly and victoriously. However, it's this night's time to go compete for the prize, and little Arthur looks around and realizes he forgot the knight's sword. This is a problematic. And so, in, in great haste and great concern, he runs back to the inn that they were staying, not realizing that the whole town had shut down to be a part of the competition of knights. And so, as he's trying to get into the inn, he realizes that it will be to no avail. And so he's looking around, and in the distance, you would believe it, he sees the sword and the stone and an all-forgotten place where it had overgrowth and the fence wasn't taken care of, and he says, there's my relief. And so he runs over there, looks at the sword and the anvil, and he grabs it, a little tug, and it comes out from the stone. And so he takes it, he rushes back, thinking in his mind, I am safe. I'm not going to get chopped in half by my knight. And he takes it, he gives him the sword, and all of a sudden, everyone realizes that this was no ordinary sword, that this was the sword of whom it was told, that whoever could pull this out of the stone would be the rightful king of England. And so, uh, in great speed, everyone shut down the entire event, and they rushed over to the sword and the stone to see if indeed this was the sword. They all got over there, realized that that was indeed the sword, and they said, no way this little child could be the one who pulled this sword out of the stone. Better and bigger people have tried. And so they said, let's make sure, put it back in there. <laughs> put it back into the stone. And they put, it, they put it back in the stone, and people were pushing and shoving to try to be the next person to get it out, and no one could. And they said, all right, everybody back up. Let little Arthur go and see if he can do it. He reaches over there, grabs it, gives it a little tug, and it comes right out. And to a great astonishment, everyone said, this must be the rightful king of England. And you see, the whole point of the story is to say it didn't matter who it was in this story. It just mattered that only he could do what he did. That was the whole point. He must have been the king of England because only the king of England could do that. What does that have to do with God? Well, if we can draw a line over to the realities of when we read Scripture and we read the miraculous acts we see in the Old Testament, and we see many of them, just think for a moment, you being in the beginning of time in Genesis, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water. And then God said, let there be light. And you see through the expanse, God creating and making. Imagine the miracle of creation. And only God could do that. And we take it through the Old Testament and we see God taking Israel out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched hand and we see him dividing the Red Sea, water to the left, water to the right, and he takes Israel right through the sea. And he holds back even the torrents of the water. 
Or that we see when uh, Elijah was there next to uh, the, the false worshipers and the Baal worshipers, and, and they're there testing God, and, and they build a giant mound of wood, and they said, whoever's God can, can cast fire from heaven and consume this, their God is true. And in a moment, God pours fire from heaven and consumes the pile. See, those are things that only God can do. But there's another story, another account of history that we read in Exodus 16. One you and I may not think so miraculous, but all the same was a very big deal to the amount of care and the amount of sustenance that God would give his people. And we see it in Exodus 16 when manna came from heaven. And when you learned it, maybe like I did in Sunday school, you may have forgot that it wasn't just manna one day, manna for one year. It was manna for 40 years. For 40 years, every day, except for the Sabbath. And then he gave them a double amount the day before to sustain them even on the Sabbath. For 40 years, God provided manna from heaven to the people. Even though their sin caused them to be in the wilderness for 40 years, God still provided for them, and that is something that only God can do. You see, well, when we talk about miracles, and when we move to Jesus, who's the focal point of our, our message this morning, because I want you to do is I want you to, as Pastor Evan read Isaiah 9-6, I want you to anchor yourself in Isaiah 9-6. I want you to have one foot in Isaiah 9-6, because it's telling you of a child that is to come who will be called Mighty God. This was no ordinary child. It was not common, and it would even be blasphemous in the time of the Hebrews in the Old Testament to call anyone God except God alone. And so when we take this of no little value, when they said there is coming a time where there will be a child who will be born to us, and two chapters before it tells you a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, and then his name will also be Mighty God. And what I want you to do is I want you to keep a foot in Isaiah 9, 6, because that's where we've been. But I also want you to flip to our, our, our passage, our main text this morning in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Because we're going to go to the miracles of the New Testament. And it's important that you and I understand why Jesus performed miracles in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, there are many in our world who misinterpret or have been misinformed of the purpose of the miracles of Christ. And the danger for those people is not only misunderstanding the reason for the miracles, but to miss the whole message of Jesus Christ altogether. But on the other hand, if we rightly understand the purpose of Jesus' miracles, it's going to do something quite amazing. As a matter of fact, what it will do is it will remove any doubt in your mind of Jesus' true purpose here on earth as he came born of a woman, a child in a manger, who will be called Mighty God, who has come here to do one thing, to save people from their sins. And when we see the miracles, and we see all the things that Christ does, every single time he points it back to one thing, I have come to deal with the biggest problem in your life, and that is your relationship with my Father, and only God could do that. So I want you to look at John 6, there in your Bible. If you haven't flipped there yet, I want you to flip there. I want your eyes on the text. John 6, chapter 1. In John 6, chapter 1, we're seeing Jesus feeding the 5,000, is what it says in the text. But when you read the text, it tells you 5,000 men. They weren't including the, the children and the women, which would bring this total number to somewhere around 20,000 people. So Jesus there feeding the 20,000 people, and we have to ask, but why? So let's look. So this is after Jesus had healed the man who was crippled in the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, and so let's pick up there together, John chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they had saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You can underline that if you write in your Bible because that's going to give you 
a glimpse into the whole theme of this account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and teaching them about his purpose on earth. Because the problem with the crowd, which is often the problem with us and the world around us, is we're so focused on the signs and we're not focused on the message. We're focused on the flash, but not the future. And so for us, we need to look at the text. Verse 2 is a great opportunity for us to say they were focusing on something that Jesus was trying to point them to something even greater. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Of course he did. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them, even to get a little. A denarii was a a wage that was actually worth a full day's wage in that time. And so imagine Philip saying, uh, two-thirds of your yearly salary would not be enough to feed the people who are sitting down, even a little bit. That's the thing that is in the attention of Philip, and that should be to our attention, because when we look at this miracle, one thing should come to mind. Only God could do that. And so, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But he, just like Philip, say, but what are these for so many people? Only God could do that. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, 20,000 around, including the women and children. Jesus, when he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Did you see the miracle? It wasn't that everyone got a little, it's that everyone got as much as they wanted. And when they ate their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign, remember, remember this, their minds are always about the sign and not about the Messiah. When they had saw the sign that they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. You see, if you look into the text, is what, uh, what do you notice about the word prophet? It's capitalized, isn't it? So they're talking about a particular individual because if you know your Bible, you can go back to Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses himself says, there is one coming, one like me, who will teach the people of Israel. And so they, from the time of Moses forward, were looking for this individual who would be the prophet like Moses. And so they were saying, this must be the one. But the problem is, is Jesus didn't come just to be the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy. He came to be much more than that. He came to be the the king of the throne of David. He came to be the savior of the world. He came to be the lamb that was slain for the sins of many. And so he wasn't there to be the prophet, which is what they wanted in that time. You realize that there was a lot of chaos going on. Israel was in its later phases in the sense that they were once this great, mighty kingdom, and now they're in a lot of political turmoil. Does that sound familiar? Right. They were looking for a leader who could make them politically superior to their neighbors. They were looking for someone who could get them out of the meager estate that they were in and lift their nation back up to prominence. Does that sound like any other nation that you know about? The point that Jesus is making here is I didn't come to be in this moment in history the political savior. I didn't come here to raise up Israel to a prominence primarily. Now, if you know your Bible, you know eventually that is what's going to happen and we'll get there. But what here, what happens is as they wanted to do this, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in a temporary kingship. Jesus wasn't interested in the temporary situation. He was looking for something far more superior, far more necessary for the world, and far more necessary than you and me. Because the kingship that Christ came to enact is an eternal kingship. 
and him focusing in on all the little things that were going on in that time, and that being his focus, would take the focus on what he really came to do. And that is to come deal with sin and death. Isn't that interesting? What keeps thrones, even in the introduction, what kept the king of England from reigning forever? Death. What keeps you and I from living forever? Death. Why does death happen? What does the Bible say? For the wages of sin is death. The reality is the Bible teaches us it's appointed for man once to die. And so we understand that the real thing that we have come to deal with is a sin problem and a death problem. And Christ didn't just come to fix the temporary issues. He came to fix the sin problem. And when we look at the sign, when we look at the miracle, just like the people did, just like the crowd did, right, what we need to understand is the signs of Jesus may capture your interest, and they may capture your intrigue, but we must understand that Jesus didn't come to capture your interest. He didn't come to capture your intrigue. He came to capture your life. And that is the gospel message. That Christ has come to capture your life, to clothe it in righteousness, to make you acceptable to a holy, perfect God. And so the whole narrative here in the text of Jesus feeding the 20,000 people was to connect his work to the work of God in Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, God brings manna from heaven. Here in John 6, Jesus is providing manna to the thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he's directly connecting himself to things that only God could do. Jesus proved to the crowd that he is sufficient. He proved to the crowd that that he is sufficient for all things. But when you look at the text, what does the crowd focus on? Did they focus on the sufficiency of Christ? They didn't. They focused on the bread, didn't they? They focused on the temporary thing and not the eternal thing. It actually says as much. Jesus says this in verse 26. Look down at verse 26. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were making it about the temporary. They weren't even looking at what Jesus was really talking about. And if we're not careful when it comes to the miracles of the Bible, we are too busy wanting the miracles of the Bible, not realizing the great miracle of the Bible is Jesus pointing to the fact that he has come and has authority to save us from our sins. That's the purpose of the miracles, to show you and me that he is the bona fide son of God, that he is who he said he is, and he can come to do what he said he can come to do. We need to make sure that our focus is on the point, the point of the miracle, which is who he is and what he can do. And the reality of the miracles of God is he shows us that we cannot provide for ourselves, that only he can provide for us the things that we need that lead to eternal life. And I want you to look, you can sum it up in this way, in point number one, you need to admit your need for God's provision. Point number one on your outline, write it down this way. You need to admit your need for God's provision. And all of these miraculous acts you see, they're pointing to one thing. They're proving that Jesus has come to save sinners, and only God can save sinners. And because of that, you need to admit you in need of God's provision. Admit your need for God's provision. And I'm not just talking about your provision for sustenance today and food for today, because let's be honest, there's not many people who are living in New Braunfels although there are some, but not many in this room, who couldn't go to the store and buy your own bread. But the reality is your life is so insufficient in so many areas that really with the insufficiencies in your life that you can put your finger on, they should be in your life a symptom to the reality that your problems extend far beyond whatever your felt need is right now. It's a symptom of the true problem in your life, and that is a sin problem. Let me, let me turn you to a text to show you that's exactly what Jesus was doing in his own miracles. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We'll be in verse 1. You need to admit your need for God's provision. And it is our frailties often. It's our problems. It's our insufficiencies. Um, and we often think that that's what Jesus needs to come fix. If he can only make me uh, more wealthy, if he can only make me prettier... You know, if he, can, if he can only put me in a different situation in my life, if he can only uh, make me a better this and make me a better parent, all this would work out. 
But Jesus didn't come primarily to make you a better parent. He came to make you a disciple. And being a disciple would in turn, I trust, through the power of the Spirit, make you a better parent. But do you see the problem that you perceived and the real problem that you actually had was relationship with God? Let me show you that there in Mark 2. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. You can underline that. What was the whole purpose of Jesus being there? What was it? Preaching the word. See, when we think about miracles, we must always look at the context surrounding the miracles. And that Jesus was doing this one thing. He was preaching the gospel. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did you notice what he said? He didn't initially say, Son, stand up and start walking and go along your way. Thank you for coming and seeing me today. No, no, he took it right to the heart of the problem. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. He was there to preach the gospel, and he was there to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. But let's continue. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Well, that is, unless only God could do that, and he's God. He says, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a very good question. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? In the real, in the real world, what is easier to say to somebody? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, get up, and walk? Hmm? It's, it's a lot easier to say that your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove that, right? There's no way to prove when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. There was no way to prove that. But so that Jesus could prove that he could forgive that man's sin, he also said this. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this because only God could do this. The point of the miracle was to do this, was the point that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And when you look at the text of Scripture, and when you look at the Gospels, always draw a line from the miracles of God to the authority of Christ to forgive sins. And if you do that, you will not get the miracles in the New Testament wrong. Because the miracles were not done to create some type of majestic feeling in your life. They were there to point you to the authority of Christ to forgive you for your sins. And what better way could Christ show us that he has the authority to take away sin than to deal with the very things in our life that we see directly because of sin? And so therefore, we need to admit our need for God's provision. The next few verses there in John chapter 6, nine verses specifically, the disciples went on a boat to the other side of the sea and they went without Jesus. And this is the scene where you see Jesus walking on the water and he meets them on the other side in Capernaum. Not that we want to skip those verses, but I do want you to, to pick back up in verse 25. Pick back up there in verse 25 in John 6. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, this is the crowd, when did you come here? Because he didn't get in the boat. They never saw him get in a boat. He just was all of a sudden over on the other side of the sea. And this is when Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. There again, Jesus is pointing out their materialistic motives. Because he says in verse 27, do not work for bread that perishes. This is the point of the Christian faith that we have to get completely correct here in America, here in our world, because our greatest export in America is a false gospel, is a prosperity gospel. And we take it to countries far and wide. Then we tell people that they actually started over there in that country when it started here and we took it there through missionaries who were uninformed about the miracles of God. And so for us... When we look, and we look at verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to give you more of what you don't need. Like, you already have a problem with the things that you have. You focus on them and you don't focus on me. 
It's like, I'm giving you some bread for today, and you can't stop thinking about it, but you can't put your mind on me. And Christ is a saying here. He's like, I'm not giving you more of what you don't need. What Christ came to do is make you acceptable for a relationship with God. That's what Christ's miracles would have showed you, that he has the power to make you acceptable to God through him. But here's what he says to do in verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes. I mean, this, all this is going to perish. It's going to go away. But here's what you need to do. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. That is, Jesus is God's certified agent to give you eternal life. And you know certified agents, right? I mean, you know there are certain things in the world that you can only buy from one place. And you know that if you get it from anywhere else, it's a complete knockoff. I know some of you wearing knockoff Nikes, okay? And you know, right? You know that this did not come from the Nike store, okay? This came from somewhere else. And you know because it's a knockoff. It's not the real thing. And the reality is here we have, we have Christ saying you need to look for the food that endures your eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you, that Jesus is the certified agent to give eternal life. Nowhere else. It is found nowhere else that man would come to God except for through Christ. And they said to him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I love that because, again, they're all about how, how, do I, how can I do it? How do I get there on my own? You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So they struggle with materialism and legalism. I want more, and what do I need to do to get right with God on my own? And it's not unlike the things that we deal with in our own culture. We want more, 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 and if God can do that, I love him. And it's legalistic because I can pull my own bootstraps up and I can make this happen on my own. You just tell me the list that I need to check all the boxes and then I will figure it out from there. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's like, here's what you need to do. And Jesus answered in verse 29. This is the work of God. I love that. I put work and in parentheses I put miracle. This is the miracle of God. You want to talk about miracles? Or you want to talk about things that God has done that are unbelievable? This is what he did. This is the miracle of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's the miracle that Jesus come to perform, that through God, we, sinful people, dead in our trespasses and sin, according to Ephesians 2, that we were dead. You know what dead people do? Nothing. It's a miracle that a dead person could do anything. And so the fact that that God says you're both dead and I have raised you and I have brought life into you and I have created within you a believing heart, that, my friends, is something only God can do. And so they said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe as if the things that he already did weren't enough, which brings me to the point of the reality of the false gospels that we have out here. It's about what God can do for me lately. It's not about what God did for me to save me from my sins. And here, he's already fed the 5,000. He's already healed the crippled man in Bethesda. He's already been done sufficiently enough to prove that he can come deal with our problem, our main problem, our sin problem. But yet they say this, what work do you perform? Give me more. Do something more for me. And they said in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Remember Exodus 16? As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. You remember Deuteronomy 18, when uh, they looked at Moses as he was the one, right? And they could idolize Moses, and here Jesus is turning their attention from Moses and putting it on God. Just like Jesus is taking their attention now and turning it away from the bread and turning it to the bread of life. Turning it to Jesus. And so, Jesus said to them again, Moses was not the one who gave you the bread from heaven, in verse 32, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Pretty clear, isn't it? I have come down to be that which meets your greatest need. And, and here they go again. Sir, give us this bread always. They didn't want salvation. They wanted an unlimited meal plan. They're like, they gave it for 40 years. You're telling me you're from God. What about 80? Can you give me a meal plan three times a day? College students, you know all about that. Right? Meal plan. They're thinking meal plan. Jesus is saying plan of salvation. They're thinking, can you feed me some bread this month? 
The crowd couldn't look past the temporary benefits to see the eternal realities of what Jesus was really there to do. And the problem, even in our culture, is that people come to Christ to have their immediate needs met without a second thought to their eternal needs. And with that, I put a little pause in the sermon to come to this reality that that our church, we want to be a church that meets needs. We want to be a church that helps. But I want to be a church that gives help that's helpful. And if we're going to be a church that helps in a way that's helpful, we can't just give temporary needs. We have to meet eternal needs. And for us to be a church that preaches a biblical gospel doesn't mean that we're a church that doesn't meet physical needs. It, meets, it means that we're a church who strives to meet the eternal needs. And then also on the side, we would like to meet the needs of people in other ways. As a matter of fact, James puts it that way in the letter to the churches. He says, none of us should look at people and say, go be warm. He says, you ought to meet those needs. So we definitely see a great need to meet needs. But the problem is, as they were dealing with here, the crowds in John and what we deal with in our culture, is the churches are just supposed to go meet physical needs, but there isn't a second thought in many people's lives about the real eternal needs. And so let us be known for a church that is helpful. But let us be known as a church that gives help that is truly helpful, welling up to eternal life. Because here's the thing that we understand about the depraved the, the souls that we are, that we once were, that you once walked in these ways, Ephesians 2, that we want the miracle and not the Messiah. That's the problem with the way that people preach miracles in the Bible, isn't it? We want the miracle. We want more. We want the flash. We want the show. But we want the miracle and not the Messiah. We want the flashy wonders, but we don't want the relationship. Right? I want what Christ can give me, but I don't want the commitment as, for him as my Lord But that's exactly what Christ came to do, not for a temporary kingdom, for an eternal kingdom, for all those who would turn from their sin and place their trust in him. You see, Christ didn't come to primarily give you bread. He came to be your bread. You see what I'm saying? I know it's ridiculous. Tweetable, but not great. All right. Uh, He came not to give you bread, but to be your bread. And really what this means is Christ came to be the solution to your never-ending need, your never-ending problem. Now, does that mean that Christ didn't care about meeting needs? No. I want you to look back at verses 12 and 13. John 6, verses 12 and 13. Of course, Christ meant to meet the immediate needs, even of his disciples. And I love that here. Because the disciples are people who rendered their lives to Jesus. And I think back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things in the context? Food, shelter, clothing. I love this. You render your life to me, and I'm going to take care of the basic needs you have. That is the promise of Christ. No car, no airplane, no mansion on a hill, but I'm going to make sure that you have food, clothes, and shelter. And there will not be a person who comes to Compass Bible Church and calls this place home. I'm not talking about knocking on the door. I'm talking about you call this place home, and I promise you that's fulfilled in your life because it's God's command and promise that all of his children will have food, shelter, and clothing. And here's what he does. I love it. Render your life to Christ. He still cares about the immediate needs. Gather up. Look at verse 12. And the disciples were told to go gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Well, I'll be. 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12. You believe that? God even gave Judas a basket. Think about that for a minute. Okay. We have 12 baskets. You can't help but believe there were 12 disciples doing the work of the Lord. And at the end of the day, after they were done serving God and serving the people, they're walking out with each a whole basket of provision from the Lord. I'm not going to tell you that God doesn't meet your needs. All I'm saying is what Jesus is saying is he cares abundantly more about your everlasting need than he does your temporary need. And if we as a church would begin thinking that way, you know, I, I hurt and I'm in pain with the people who have diseases in our church, the people who are crippled when I look out in the community and I see the world with great needs. But imagine you channeling it the way the Bible does and says, Jesus says, I came to deal with a major problem. 
And this is to those who say Christ came to, to heal all of the people. Then why did Jesus leave earth before he healed all the people on earth? Why didn't he heal every cripple? Why didn't he heal all the lame, all the blind? Why? Not because he didn't care, but simply because he came to deal with the bigger problem. And therefore, if you and I, not to dispel, not to reject people in great physical need, but if we would begin with our minds and with our eyes and with our hands, begin thinking the way that God does, when we look at the physical needs of people, it should draw us quickly, expeditiously to their eternal need. And then there we can give help that is helpful. And I want you to sum it up this way in point number two. You need to reject temporary solutions to eternal problems. We as a church, you as an individual, need to reject temporary solutions to eternal problems. This isn't about us, how much we can get from Jesus here. This is about what Jesus has done to get us from here to there. We need to reject temporary solutions to eternal problems. While you're writing, I want you to jot down Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Remember, I told you to keep an anchor in Isaiah 9. When we look at Isaiah 9, we see that there's a child who's going to be born. He'll be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. But as you keep going into Isaiah 53, you begin seeing a portrait of one whom God is sending that we know historically as the suffering servant, as they named him in the Old Testament, as the rabbis taught through history that this will be the suffering servant who comes to deal with our problems. And here we see exactly what the suffering servant has come to do. Let's look. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Did you notice that Christ came to do something particular? He came to take on the problem in our life. Our problem is a sin problem. Our problem is that we can transgress the law of God. I do it periodically. So don't have to raise your hand, but because I know we're guilty of all of them. All right. How many of you guys have told a lie? All right, good. All right. How many of you guys have stolen something? Okay. All right. How many of you guys think about other things more than you think about God? Now you're an idolater. You broke the first commitment, commandment. How many of you have ever disrespected your mother and father? We can talk to the kids about that one. <laughs> all of us. We're all lawbreakers, right? We have transgressed the law of God, and so therefore Christ has come to be pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I love that. We talked about peace last week. We're going to talk about the Prince of Peace in the coming weeks. And the reality of the Christ coming here was to be the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Did you see that? The healing comes from his wounds. The healing comes. So, okay, so that means if I'm dealing with anything, I just go take the wounds of Christ and I rub them on me. You see how that doesn't work when it comes to a lot of the needs in our life, but it does when it comes to the greatest need in our life. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. That is the theological definition for what Christ has done on the behalf of everyone who's turned from their sins and placed their trust in Christ. I love the term because it explains exactly what has had to happen. Penal. You know the penal code, don't you? The penal code is all the laws and all the infractions that create a reason uh, that you need to be arrested or given a ticket, right? Penal, that means there's a judiciary understanding of the penalties and consequences of your actions. And so therefore, what Christ had come to do is take care of the penal situation, the legal situation, the justice necessary because of your law-breaking, substitutionary, substitute. That that's your place, and Christ substituted himself into your place. That he has come to take what you deserve and to put it on himself. That's what it says, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that put him in our place. Penal substitutionary atonement. What Christ has done to fulfill the law on our behalf was what was needed to atone our relationship with God. 
There was something broken. There was something missing. There was a chasm between you and me and God. And the atoning factor of the substitute of Christ being that one who stepped into the chasm and took on the penal justice that you and I deserved atoned for the problem of sin. And that's why when we read this, we recognize that I've got to reject all the temporary solutions that I've been told all my life and realize the eternal problem is that I'm a lawbreaker. That sin causes death. The wages of sin are death. And the reality of my life as I look at Isaiah 53 is that Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to do what only God could do. And so therefore we reject any of the temporary solutions to our lives and our problems and we understand that we must respond to the substitutionary offer of Christ to take our sins and place them on him. Let's continue. Look at, look at John 6, verse 35. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them there in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They make it about the miracles and not about faith in Messiah. You've seen me over and over again do the miracles and tell you that I've come to preach the gospel and I've came to save people from their sins over and over again. And yet you want me to do more of what you want, but not more of what I've come to do. Which is why we preach a biblical gospel. We want to meet people's needs, but the biggest need we can meet in the people's life is to give them Christ. And he says... Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I love that. Like We are sealed by the Father. That Christ has us in his midst as Christians, right? Those who have turned from their sins and placed their trust in Christ, and we are protected and sealed by the Father to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and there is no getting out of that. There is no losing it. When you've responded and made that transaction, that substitutionary atoning death of Christ, you are therefore protected by the Father in the righteousness of Christ. And then verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. I love that. He's saying, you know, the manna came down in heaven. In Exodus 16, I am the manna who've come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. I love this. You all have this question, right? We all have the question, what's the will of God? Well, go ahead and underline it right here because in no uncertain terms, Jesus said, here's the will of God. You want the will of God in your life? Here's the will of God in your life. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? That's our solution and our eager expectation. Right? This is the will of God that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That problem you were dealing with, death, the thing that you're trying to keep from happening, those wrinkles that tell me you're getting closer and closer, right? all those things, right? Christ came to deal with that. Right? Not the wrinkles, but the consequences that you see because of the wrinkles are coming, you know what else is coming along. And here we see, here's the response. Everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him, this is important because prepositions matter. Do you want to live on your house or in your house? Can you imagine? I agreed to live on my house. I can never go in. I got to live on top of it. Okay, prepositions matter. And when this says here, you need to believe in Christ, this doesn't simply mean an assent to intellectual facts of God. This doesn't mean we can look at the Bible and say, I agree. I think those things are true. Now, that's part of it, and I don't believe that you could ever get to a saving knowledge of Christ without an actual mental assent to facts in Scripture. I think you, that's prerequisite, but that doesn't save you because knowledge doesn't save a man. What saves a man is God. And so when we look at this, what do we need to do? Believes in Christ. Right? If you're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, your trust, that word believe means epistis, right? faith, trust, has to be placed into Christ. This isn't like you and me like saying, I believe uh, in the tooth fairy. No, you don't. That's a word you use. See, the world's hijacked the word believe, and so therefore when we get into this word believe in the Bible, we misunderstand completely what the word believe means. You, you're telling me if you're a Christian, you believe in Christ. Your belief is in him as this penal substitutionary atonement for your sin. That can't be a mental assent to the truth. That's me surrendering my life to a holy God. And now Christ is the Lord of my life. 
That's what believe means. And whoever looks at Christ and places their trust in him as a substitute for our own sin, he has eternal life. And here's the good news. I'm going to raise him up on the last day. I'm going to perfect him. I'm going to glorify him. As Christ has been glorified, so we too will also be glorified with him. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the problem. See, we are not thinking long-term enough. Some of you are waiting for retirement, but what about retirement, retirement? When it's not really retirement at all, we're working for the Lord for eternity. Some of you think you're thinking long-term, but you're not thinking long-term enough. You want to live as long as you can with all the things you hit here and now. But what about this? I'm going to raise them up on the last day. So on the last days, the days are going to keep going. It's going to be eternal. Have we thought about those days? Have we thought about investing in those days? Have we thought about Christ coming and fixing the problem so when we get to those days, our life is conformed to Christ and we're glorified with him? And now we don't have the wrinkles. Isn't that great? So, verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Isn't this the problem of history? Everyone looks at Jesus and says, that's not God. Isn't that what they just did? Isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Didn't they have him out of wedlock? Right? Isn't that, isn't, I've, I know his brothers and sisters. And he's telling me he's this. It's a problem that we all face. It's a problem we have throughout history. There must be you trusting in Christ as God incarnate. And we keep going. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets... They will all be taught by God. Voila, people being taught by God right here. Even right now. Right? You're being taught by God through the word of God. And them for sure in that time being taught by God in Christ. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I've seen the Father. The only one who has seen the Father is the one who come from the Father. And truly I say to you in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever places their trust in Christ has eternal life. And he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I love this. He puts the hammer in uh, the nail in the coffin. There you go. He puts the hammer in the coffin and he can't get to the nail now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he puts the final nail in the coffin to the materialism of the people. He's like, you guys keep talking about manna in the wilderness and here's the problem. They're dead. The problem is, you're right, they did feed them for 40 years, but what happened after that? They're dead. Tell them to come witness to you. They can't because they're dead. You're making that the big deal. When I'm telling you, I'm going to give you bread that was up to eternal life. That's some bread. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Temporary, eternal. The weight of the eternal bread of life that is Christ. And he says in verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down for heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And there's only one person who can give eternal life. Only God can do that. And the bread, I love this, if you were ever wondering, and that the bread that I will give you for eternal life of the world is my flesh. This is what he said. He's already foretelling. What I'm going to do is be the substitutionary atonement. My body for your body. My flesh for your flesh. My life for your life. If we ever want to know the nature of our relationship with God, it is Christ's whole life for my whole life. Not part of my life. Not just the minute that I give the commitment. But his life for my life. Because it is his, his body with his flesh that he will give as a ransom for many. And what we can't miss is we, like the crowds here in John 6, can desire temporary food and miss the whole point for miracles. And I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to do it because any miracle, every miracle you're going to read in the Bible and you just covet that miracle, you've already hit the problem. You covet the thing and not Christ. We want the miracles and not the Messiah. We can't covet. We're not coveting the miracles because the miracles were to show us why we ought to covet Christ because that's who he is. We can take him at his word and what we should do in Mark 2 is what we just read earlier. 
in Mark 2 that the miracles show us that he has authority to forgive sins. And I hope we pick no bones about it. Their problem here is a sin problem. The problem that you and I, we face is, is very much a sin problem. You're going to die one day, and you're going to need the answer to eternal life. And therefore, Jesus says, turn away from a life, live for yourself, and turn to mighty God. Turn away from a life, live for yourself, with you looking out for number one uno in your life. Turn away from you and turning to God. And it is through that what we call repentance, that you turn away from a life, live for yourself, and you trust in Christ. You put your faith in him. Right? Not in his miracles, not in what he can do for me lately, but what for what reason that Christ came to die for your sin, to take your place, to substitute his life for your life. And we read it, though we read it in the text, we understand that Christ didn't save everyone in the whole world, right? If you believe that, you're a universalist. Right? Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, but is applied to those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ. If you don't believe that, you're a universalist, and there's probably no universalist in here, because we all know that it requires a response, and that's point number three on your outline. Write it down this way. You need to respond to Christ's offer of eternal life. You must respond to Christ's offer of eternal life, and that's the biblical gospel. Not respond to Christ's offer for more now, not, Christ, not responding to Christ's offer of the miracles today but that all of those things pointed to the reason why you can truly trust him to forgive you for your sins because only God can do that and only God can save you from your sins. That's why I use the intro with King Arthur. Not that King Arthur even knew what he was doing. He didn't. He accidentally pulled the sword out of the anvil, which is where the which is where the, the illustration falls apart. Because you know Christ didn't accidentally fall out of heaven and find himself in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, the Bible the Bible says it that this had been predestined since the beginning of time that Christ would come, and that he would save sinners. There was no accident. But just like only King Arthur could pull the sword, the reality is that only Jesus can save us from our sin. That only Christ has, can come to offer eternal life. And my great prayer for you and my great expectation is that you would seize the opportunity, if you haven't, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before you go out and have fun, right before we have a blast out there, that the realities of eternal things are immensely more important than the temporary things. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word that uh, has enlightened our minds and our eyes not to find more knowledge, but to find the truth of your word. And so my prayer, God, is that your spirit would open our minds to understand, our hearts to respond, our hands and feet to live for you, and mouths that would proclaim your greatness and your glory to this world. And I pray, God, if anything else, we see that the use of miracles that you have placed in Scripture point us to not the miracle, but the Messiah. That it's all used to point us to the true realities that you have the power to forgive us for our sins. So we lift this up to you as we sing again one last time, all in the name of Jesus. Amen.